Hey, what's up? Hello, family, friends, whoever's listening. People hate listening, whatever it may be. I hope your Thursday evening is going well. It's, man, it's been a beautiful day here in the Reno-Tahoe area. Got some work done, got out on a good uh, good run, took a aptitude test, and sitting here talking to you guys right now. I want to talk about kind of a health crisis in Europe, and I also want to talk about a pretty like chaotic event between the police in Atlanta versus an environmentalist group, and it led in a death, and it's being covered very disingenuously, in my opinion. But first, first I want to talk about a Russian oligarch who I think is going to become very important soon. And and his name is Yevgeny Prigozhin. And if you haven't heard of him, he's a really fascinating char- character in a lot of ways. He's a Russian, he's a powerful Russian oligarch, definitely on the far la- uh, far right, sorry. I would argue that he might even be further right than our friend Vladimir Putin. And he actually has a history of running the Internet Research Agency, which was like a base which was basically one of those giant troll farms that you know really came to predominance I guess you could say in like the 2016 era and this is a guy who from what I've understood is kind of exporting politics in a box and I'm gonna do a longer episode on him later because I think he might be kind of a political rival to Putin especially if the war in Ukraine keeps getting worse but this is an interesting guy who is exporting politics exporting ideas there's a lot of African countries that are actually being influenced by a lot of the information and media that he's putting out there. And this idea of exporting politics in a box is very dangerous, in my opinion. This is also a guy who is, I believe, one of the founding funders of the Wagner Group as well. So he's ultra-nationalist, ultra-right-wing, and he doesn't believe the war in Ukraine is going well. And he thinks that Putin is not doing a good job. And so a lot of people think that he is angling for something. And I've seen him compared to Qasem Soleimani, right? The guy who, under the Trump administration, was killed. The guy who was kind of leading these quasi-wars around the world using the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, etc. And obviously Soleimani is not, I mean, not Soleimani. Um, our, our Russian oligarch friend is not like Soleimani. He's not a general or anything. But people think that because he's been recently attacking Putin, attacking the Kremlin, he's definitely trying to get into politics. And I read a really good article about how he is being seen by a lot of nationalists as this kind of patriot that Putin should be but is not. So people are really thinking things may be changing soon in Moscow. So you always hear in the news, oh, the longer we wait, it's going to be worse for Ukraine. Putin's playing the long game. I almost would argue that maybe it could backfire because the longer this goes on, the more opposition internally goes towards Putin. And, and our friend here might be involved in that. And he's a scary guy. If you think Putin's scary, this guy could be even more scary. So not good stuff by any means. And we'll, we'll keep following that. I'm probably going to do a longer episode on that. But I just wanted to touch on the idea of exporting politics in a box, exporting propaganda, right-wing nationalism, and violent rhetoric to countries that maybe will fall for it. So interesting stuff. But moving on, first, I just wanted to start by saying that Holy crap, it has been three years since Kobe's death. That's Kobe Bryant, January 26th, 2020. A date to me that will always mark, well, a tragic death of one of my favorite basketball players. I'm a Lakers fan, so that was really tragic. Obviously, it killed his daughter too. But at the same time, 
his death, I think, marked the beginning of a very strange year. And I'll start by saying, I mean, it's first off just crazy. It's been three years, right? Like time is a flat circle, a flat, strange circle of nothingness. And three years feels both like yesterday and also an eternity ago because this whole pandemic era just feels like the quickest blow through period and also the longest eternity of my life. And I remember where I was when I first got a notification on my phone that Kobe Bryant had died in a plane crash. Uh, I was sitting in Madrid, Spain, or Las Rosas, Spain, recording the old podcast with Drew, and I'm like, hey man, holy shit, uh, Kobe died. And we're both like, oh my god, what? And (laughs) I remember that Kobe dying was the first strange thing of many things to come, right? Like, this is late January. By February, you're hearing about a virus circulating across the globe, and by March... In Madrid, we have National Guard shutting down the border, and I ended up not leaving the house for three months. And, you know, I always like to get go down the rabbit hole on this when I'm talking with friends around a fire or over a few drinks or cigars or whatnot. I feel like Kobe dying was some kind of a butterfly effect or a break in the matrix. Like, he wasn't supposed to die. And him dying just created like a ripple effect and everything changed since. And of course I'm kidding, but I like to entertain that idea is that he wasn't supposed to die. And when he did, everything else went to just chaos. So, you know, so much has just happened since 2020. So this morning when I saw that it it had been the three-year anniversary, of course, my first thoughts were, you know, he died too young, of course. But then I also said, good God, so much has happened since then. So... Yes, it's it's tragic, you know, I, I think he would be impressed, at least, that the Lakers did win in 2020, obviously weird season, but Lakers did win the championship that year, so that was kind of nice, so RIP 24. Anyways, uh, moving on to politics, because I am not a sports guy, because believe me, I could rant about the rumors about Aaron Rodgers going to the Jets. <laughs> oh, God, I'm not even, I'm not even going to entertain that idea. Thinking of Rodgers being a Jet is probably just my saddest reality ever, so we'll stick on politics. I just wanted to mention that it's been actually pretty interesting over the last 24 hours seeing Republicans twist themselves into just rhetorical you know, pretzels. And I mean, Ted Cruz is not a skinny dude, but I saw him do an interview, I think it was on Fox News or Fox Business, and he really was flexible for a guy who looks like he hasn't exercised in a decade. And, I mean, he was, you know, saying, oh, I'm good friends with Mike Pence, so even though Biden is a criminal for the classified documents thing, Mike Pence, you know, he he was transparent and did nothing wrong, though we need to now search Hunter Biden, and this is all Joe Biden's fault, and blah, 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 and it's like, holy shit, man, like, give me a break, like, both Mike Pence and Biden are kind of similar tales of this classified documents nightmare. It's like they've both been transparent. They both found documents. But it's just interesting to see how people like Ted Cruz, also Elise Stefanik, who has kind of said that Joe Biden is different from Pence and Trump, and we need to investigate the FBI, we need to investigate Biden, but Trump and Pence are okay. It's just interesting seeing how flexible these people are and how they just don't care about I guess an even distribution of justice. And it's a shame because the party of law and order, innocent till proven guilty. I think you're only innocent until proven guilty if you are in the Trump net, right? Like Biden doesn't really fit into that. So 
it's irritating, but there is some good news in this whole National Archives classified documents fiasco. The good news is that it seems like we may see some systemic changes to all of this mess. CNN first reported, I think it was either last night or early this morning, that in quotes, the National Archives is formally asking former presidents and vice presidents to recheck their personal records for any classified documents or other presidential records in the wake of classified documents discovered in the houses of former President Donald Trump, former Vice President Mike Pence, and President Joe Biden over the last year. It Nothing would surprise me if we just see this list grow. But anyways, from my reading of this, it seems like the archives just sent out a letter on Thursday to the representatives of former presidents and vice presidents that go back from the last six administrations. So we are talking about, what, Biden, Trump, Obama, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Reagan. That... I mean, I guess it's good, and these are all presidents covered by the record, the Presidential Records Act. Now, Jimmy Carter has not been asked about this, but I guess he's had his own issues with that in the past. But anyways, even though there is a lot of mudslinging, excuse me, a lot of mudslinging going on over this between the right and the left, blame games, trying to find differences in whatever case there is, I do think from a nonpartisan perspective, which I'm trying to take on this, it is good to see the National Archives doing this, and I think we might see some sort of changes maybe to how some of these documents are dealt with. I think the fact that they're reacting to this, I think that is quite good news for once. Something good. We're seeing the National Archives respond in a good way. Moving away from good news, I think it's time to talk about some bad news because, as you guys know, I like to broker bad news. I don't want to talk too much about good news because... Good news is something we celebrate, but we need to focus on the bad news. So I want to focus on a health issue in France, mainly. And it's a health issue in France that I think is also apparent in other parts of Europe. And we don't talk about it a lot, but we need to. Even if people are worried about stigma or offense or harm or whatever other you know catchwords they want to use. But I've been thinking about it for a while, and... There's a study that I was just reading out of France that shows that between 1997 and 2020, the share of obese French adults doubled to 17%, so almost one in five. And that's pretty crazy because in France, that's about 8 million people. And I guess I guess a lot of us in the United, in the United States think of Western Europe, especially some of the Mediterranean countries, as having pretty healthy diets. And of course, there's places like Sardinia and Spain that do have healthy like subpopulations and subcultures and whatnot. But this is interesting to see that obesity and health issues are growing through a lot of Western, Central, and Eastern Europe. And about one in five French people. And the French are always known as kind of being healthy and lean and mean and fighting machines. And I wanted to discuss this for a moment because I've noticed during my years in Europe mainly in Spain, that something was changing even before I saw these numbers. I noticed particularly that fast food, mainly McDonald's, Burger King, some other local ones, Taco Bell, which, by the way, I am a Taco Bell fan, so don't sue me. And I noticed that some of these places were becoming more prevalent in big cities and even more so in rural areas, isolated communities like 
everywhere you went, there was a Burger King and a McDonald's, and it was always busy. It was always busy, and sometimes even the small little sandwich shops or jamoneras or whatever not, they were slow compared to the Burger King in Segovia or in Sevilla or something like that. And in Las Rosas, where I lived, I noticed, (laughs) for example, that one of the most booming restaurants was McDonald's. Also, others were Burger King, Foster's Hollywood, Mel's Diner, and just others in that same, like, exported American-style diner, American-style fast food. And even there were Spanish fast food chains that were modeled on the American ones. And anyways, I just noticed in general that younger kids, families, adults, people my age were really frequenting these places. Like, of course, I like my burger. Don't get me wrong. I eat way too many burgers. <laughs> but I guess I, I, you wouldn't find me at a McDonald's doing it. You would probably find me at a local restaurant that at least used, like, good beef if I'm doing that. But also when I was in Spain, like, they have such good, like, steaks and, like, solomillo dishes and other stuff that you wouldn't find me just at a Burger King on a Friday night. You know what I mean? And the thing here is that it seemed like... F- a lot of people in my orbit in Madrid were like skipping good restaurants for these. And I remember when I was teaching a lesson, when I worked for the Comunidad of Madrid, I think I asked, I forget like the specifics, but I, something to the effect of, I asked my sixth grade students what their favorite restaurants were. It was some English exercise. We were, we were preparing for exams and a solid majority of them said Vips, which is a really bad, honestly, a really bad and overpriced diner, Denny's type of restaurant that is owned by Carlos Slim, who's one of the richest Mexicans and one of the richest people in the world. They also said up there with Vips was, or Vips as they call it, also up there was McDonald's, Foster's Hollywood, Burger King. A lot of kids would say like, oh, we love to go to Burger King. Only a few really said they liked actually like good sit-down restaurants or traditional restaurants or you know, places that more fell in line with maybe not just, like, McDonald's. And anyways, I, I really noticed this in Spain and even France. because And it's kind of interesting because they're both places that are known for their Mediterranean cuisine. And it's interesting to hear, like, younger generations really interested in this stuff. So moving on, I just give you this little antidote here because it links up with some of these revelations I started with. And it's just interesting going back to France that a country like France that's known for its fashion, right? Emphasis on slim figures, stylish lifestyles, all that stuff. And by the way, the French are pretty like judgmental on this stuff, which might be part of the problem, which I'll get to later. But it's interesting to see that this trend is continuing there. And what I mean is, I guess a place like France is just not where you would expect obesity to be on the rise because the ingredients are pretty natural, homegrown, And the culture kind of stigmatizes obesity. And that's not good. I I think stigmatizing it doesn't help. But also when you look at kind of the Western exportation of fast food and quick food and shitty products, I guess this all leads to that. And I should mention, though, that France is doing better than other countries. Like, I'm more mentioning this increase in obesity more than saying France is like the worst example in the world. And what I mean is that the same study does say that France's rate is still well below places like America, where it's almost 50%, which is insane. So like one in two people, or in this case, let's say four out of 10 people 
in the United States are obese. Mexico, it's one in three. And Britain, it's about one in four, a little bit over one in four. So France is doing better. But apparently French officials are taking notice and they are quite concerned. And there's a great article in The Economist that discusses that the French health ministry is creating a task force that is being put together to study these findings. It's being conducted out of one of my favorite French cities, Lyon. And they're going to put together a comprehensive report and get back to us in, in March. Now, getting back to us in March doesn't mean they're going to change anything because later I'll get into how I think we've known about this for a while. But anyways, the French are worried because it gets costly. It does get costly when you have a population getting constantly less healthy. And of course, I think it should be noted that this is mainly an issue of class, inequality, lifestyle, and just globalization. And I mean, I think I think there's something to be noted that in the past, being overweight was kind of welcomed because it was a sign of wealth. Like, you know, if you were in like 13th century France, I guess, <laughs> or 13th century England, being heavier set meant that you were wealthy and it was usually the poor feudal people the workers the impoverished serfs that were the ones that were skinny and things have completely changed because of food processing and equality and just the accessibility of sugar and processing and everything and the economist has a good point here it writes in quotes here Obesity in France is most marked among those on low incomes in the ex-industrial Northeast, and perhaps surprisingly among women. Interestingly, the article then later says, in quotes, French men still have on average one of the lowest rates in the European Union. So then the article goes on, a poor diet in processed food is one explanation for the income gap. According to a report by the French Senate, the obesity rate among manual workers in France reached 18%, so almost 1 in 20 by 2022, whereas for managerial workers, it is below 10%. Not surprising. Like, managerial workers, white collar, doing better off, right? Now, the interesting thing that I wanted to just note on, too, is that French women are the one who have seen a huge increase, while French men are still quite low on the obesity scale, and... Like I said, I think French culture has its emphasis on beauty and fashion, and it stigmatized the issue of obesity, and it might have made the issue worse. And, of course, the government is treading lightly on this because they don't want to be fatphobic or whatever the kids call it these days. And it's really tough because I, I do think French there's probably a reason why French women specifically are the ones where obesity is spiking the most, along with inequality in ex-industrial areas like to me there's no surprise because you have stigma mixed with inequality you have one group inequality the other group stigma and now of course like this is a hard thing to talk about but you do want to combat this and you don't want to say it's okay like i i think at least in the u.s we've kind of just gone like oh it's not your fault we'll fix this like everything's good i think we need to address this, especially in places like Europe, because it is a serious issue because obesity leads to issues such as diabetes, cancer, and even mental health issues. And that's bad on, on an individual basis. And let's be honest, it's also expensive for the state. It's also expensive for the government. And France specifically has pension issues. They're always trying to increase the age in which you start receiving retirement benefits, etc. And this could just make that way more expensive in a state that can't pay for it. So 
yeah, it's not great. But zooming out a bit to Europe as a whole, it seems like Europe in general is seeing this trend spike as well because back in mid-2022, the World Health Organization put out a report that discussed how basically obesity has reached, in quotes, epidemic proportions. And this WHO report showed that disease was causing close to 200,000 cancer cases and 1.2 million deaths a year. Of course, there's always side effects, net causes with this, but that's what they were talking about. And The Guardian has a piece on this report, and it discusses how the WHO said overweight and obesity rates had hit deadly levels and were still, in quotes, escalating. The thing is, is that I think the worrying part about this report, and The Guardian goes into detail about this, is that no country in the region, in the EU, was currently on track as of 2022 to meet the WHO global non-communicable disease target, which is meant to halt the rise of obesity by 2025. And of course, let's be honest, that's not possible. It's really not because we're seeing processed foods and cheap food and accessibility to cheap food grow, especially during economic issues, the possible coming recession. Like it's just not a great time for any of this to be happening. And just to add a little bit more context to this, Apparently, and these numbers are staggering and troubling, I guess troubling is probably the better word, is that reports across Europe by like regional, well, actually, sorry, sorry, let me go back. The WHO has worked with the European Congress on obesity, and they have noted that 59% of adults in the studied part of the block are obese or overweight, as well as 8% of children under five and one in three children of school age. And the European Congress on Obesity has also noted that prevalence of obesity in Europe is higher than in any other part of the world, except for the Americas, where I said Mexico, it's one in three. No, sorry, it was, yeah, it was one in three in Mexico and about 40 to 45% in the United States. And look, like, I don't, I'm not going to pretend to have any answers for this, but we have a weird conversation to have about like globalization has made us have more access to cheap products and we live more sedentary comfortable lives but with growing inequality and the lack of access to actually healthy foods I think we're going to see this issue get worse and it's going to become very expensive for society because I've talked about for example how a lot of countries are seeing a very young population that's small with a very older population that needs medicare benefits social security whatever you want to call it depending on the country Well, what happens now when you have a younger population that also needs state aid, along with an older population that does as well? Like, a lot of states are not going to be able to handle this. So I want to talk about this because I think we always focus on, like, the UK, Mexico, and the US specifically for having these issues, but it seems to be a trend that is growing everywhere, and it's somewhat troubling. Speaking of troubling, (laughs) for the rest of the episode, I want to talk about a pretty interesting series of events that took place in Atlanta, Georgia. Probably, I guess you could say over the last like year and a half, almost two years. And I'll sum it up before I get into the background, but basically there was a member of an environmental group called the Forest Defenders who was shot by law enforcement officials in Atlanta after he instigated it and shot at them or fired on them. And this all happened in this new project that was developed outside of the city of of Atlanta, which was basically meant to train police to be better members of the community. And this was after public backlash in 2020 following the George Floyd protests. Of course, 
activists have called this Cop City. The forest defenders think that this is an environmental disaster building this city in the forest. But I am more I am more interested in the politics of this and how it shows a lot of the downfalls or short-sightedness or just hypocrisy of the activism about police reform or Black Lives Matter, whatever you want to call it. Basically, I guess what I would say is ironically and ultimately tragically, <laughs> there's a lot of lees in that, but this place was built to help train police to do their jobs better, but environmental activists did not like where it was built, and ultimate, ultimately it led to another death by the police anyways. That's kind of the like ultimate tragedy here is that no one really won on this. But I am taking a bit of a stance to say that I think the activists were in the wrong on this one. And I'll get into my analysis later. But before we go into my thoughts, let's get into the background of it because there's a lot. And there's a local Fox 5 article out of Atlanta, Georgia that discusses how actually over the last week, I think it started on January 21st, a lot of the downtown area was just flooded with protests people demanding justice for this activist I mentioned earlier who was killed near the site of this planned Atlanta Police Department training facility. It's gone from his killing to a bigger conversation of like, fuck all cops, you know, a cab, all cops are bastards, like that whole movement, which I think is bullshit, by the way. I'll get into that later. But the article reads in quotes here, law enforcement said the protester, who law enforcement identified as a 26-year-old Manuel Esteban Paez Taran, opened fire on a Georgia State Patrol trooper before other officers returned fire. At first, the environmentalists had been camped out where the new facility was being built because they said the facility would destroy the Wee Looney forest and expand law enforcement in the area. They had been conducting small attacks, and they were damaging facilities. However, after the shooting, the protest then expanded to wider condemnation of police, and there have been numerous people with all-cops-are-bastard imagery as well. And... I mean, there's so many moving pieces here. It's like, maybe, like, if you want to look at the cop side of it, the criticism that can go towards them, it's like, maybe you don't build a giant facility out in a national forest. But then on the other side, like, if you want the community behind you, maybe you don't do small-scale attacks against the community. And then on another scale, like, if you're peaceful environmental protesters, maybe you don't go shoot on, what, Georgia State Patrols who are then going to return fire. So that's my first thoughts on this, but I want to get into a timeline to help kind of illustrate what's happened here. So basically June of 2021, so this is almost, you know, exactly almost a year after, you know, George Floyd, another man was killed in Georgia, as I recall. The Atlanta City Council basically proposed building some sort of -of state-of-the-art facility to attract more officers and also to train more officers to be better policemen, better parts of the community, and not to target minorities because there are, there were issues there, let's be honest. And this was all caused by public outrage after kind of the 2020 summer where there was a lot of focus on policing and what was wrong or right about policing. And so the city council meets June 2021, and they pinpointed about 300 acres into Cobb County, this national forest I was talking about, where there was already a police firing range, and they're like, why don't we build a facility here to train the police? But by July 2021, 
apparently opposition, of course, amongst leftists, ACAB people, environmentalists, leftists, whatnot, was growing quite quickly. And an article I was reading was saying that opponents of the training center actually built platforms in surrounding trees. They actually camped out at the site. And that's when they started calling this Cop City, which definitely stuck. Like, let's let's be honest. It's a good name, Cop City. And moving forward now to September now of 2021, so a couple months later after, after they proposed building this facility, the Atlanta City Council voted in September 2021 to approve it. And they leased the forested land to the police to build this facility. And this is when you started to see activists maybe bring up some good points. And I'm not going to say they were wrong because I do think there's some interesting points to be made here about how building this facility in the middle of nowhere to make police better trained, is it really going to work? And a lot of opponents of this plan just thought that this would make relations worse between the police and communities of color. Because I think a lot of the argument on the more really far left of getting rid of policing or defunding police, which I don't agree with, but I think the idea is that the current state of policing, like no matter what you do, you have a lot of bodies in areas where there's just created escalations. So no matter what you do, when you're when you're training people to go into areas, there's always going to be some sort of clash. And I think that's what they were saying is no matter what you do, there's going to be an issue with that. And so anyways... They approved this in September 2021, and I didn't see a lot of information after that. There seemed to be a pretty good quiet period until 2022, where things really got lit, but not in a good way. This is when Atlanta police officers arrested multiple people, multiple activists, mainly from this forest group. What are they? What are they called again? The forest defenders, sorry. And basically, they. The police arrested many forest defenders who allegedly threw rocks and alleged Molotov cocktails at law enforcement during demonstrations. Never good if you're trying to win an argument, by the way. Maybe don't throw Molotov cocktails and rocks. Anyways, but by mid-2022, the activists actually got more aggressive. According to reports, they broke windows and splashed paint on a sign at this place called Brassfield and Gorey's office, which was helping do this establishment. And, and this was in Alabama. But anyways, they wrote on the window of Brassfield and Gorey's office in, Burring, in, in Birmingham. They wrote, drop cop city or else. And this threat was taken very seriously. And apparently they caused close to $100,000 in damages. And the police put out a reward. But now by late 2022, these same activists were then actually vandalizing neighborhoods near cop city. And were even threatening locals. And it got bad enough by the end of 2022 that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation actually said that five people in this group, the forest defenders as well as others, actually faced domestic terrorism charges because they were accused of throwing rocks and bottles at police cars and EMTs along a road going out to Cop City. Again, these guys claim to be peaceful. We have to remember that. But this all leads up this escalation of events like it escalated very quickly is the first thing i would say here but anyways this series of events gets us now to january 18th so eight days ago from the time of this recording january 18th 2023 and this is when that georgia state police officer shot a protester he was shot by the way which no one is actually really talking about he was shot and then he shot the protester and killed him 
And law enforcement identified this guy as Manuel Esteban Paez, who was a non-binary guy, an activist, with the forest defenders, and he was known by Tortuguita, like little tortoise, I believe, from my understanding of Spanish. Not the name I would go by, but anyways, so he was killed after firing on police first. And I think it gets complicated from here because me trying to just be somewhat just non-biased in this sees issues on both sides. For example, on the police side or at, or the Georgia State Trooper side, there was no footage. There was no camera footage of the incident because the troopers were not required to wear body cameras. And that's something I think is not okay because, of course, this just opens up Pandora's box for conspiracies or vitriol on the activist side. And it makes the situation worse and intensifies rumors. And it's also just like, I'm, a, I'm all about transparency and compliance. And I think body cams are important. So the reports all say, right, that this guy attacked the police first. El Tortuguita, or La Tortuguita, uh, attacked this Georgia State Patrol officer first. But there's no body cams. And so because there's no body cams, now the activists are calling it a cold-blooded murder. And... Of course, it's easy to say that because, yeah, there's no body cam footage, and that looks pretty damn bad, and I think in hindsight that would have been smart to have that. So The Economist, though, also kind of backs up some of these claims, or doesn't back up some of these claims, but it explains the claims the activists are making. It reports here, reporters who spent time with La Tortuguita earlier in the year noted that he had a commitment to peaceful protest. But then The Economist also discusses kind of the hypocrisy or just the contradictions of this. The article highlights what I've been talking about. It says this group was quite violent for being considered peaceful protesters. The article notes here in quotes, But for supposedly a peaceful group, the forest defenders had lots of weapons. Cops confiscated fireworks, blades, air rifles, and a handgun that belonged to La Tortuguita in the raid. And, and of course, like I also highlighted how they were harassing businesses, neighbors, putting out threats. Like, it's not a peaceful group. They were setting up shop and trees in the area. Like, of course, it takes two to tango. I've always said that, but it's not a great look. And I guess I truly think this issue is vehemently complicated. And I can imagine that bad choices were made by both sides here. Again, the cops could have been more transparent. But again, like, the thing is, is that the... The city voted on this to actually make cops more transparent and better trained. I also think that this is one of those examples where the reform of the police or the defund movement has, has again, <laughs> they always do, gone too far and completely missed the forest through the trees. No pun intended in this case. But the reason I say this is because, first off, a lot of the people involved in harassing this cop city, as they call it, were out-of-towners. For example... La, Torti La Tortuguita himself was actually from Tallahassee, and only one of the protesters arrested was actually from Georgia. We see this time and time again, there's like a national outrage against police, and they kind of like focus in on local issues. This also tells me that these people were part of a bigger movement that maybe doesn't understand the community that they were involved in. And The Economist has a great passage that kind of backs up what I'm saying here. It writes here in quotes, the average black person in, in Atlanta said, in quotes, fuck the police, but don't defund it, says King Williams, who's a local black filmmaker who was involved in the debates around building this training facility. 
The article goes on. The training facility was first proposed by a black councilwoman who saw the need to fix chronic under-policing in poor neighborhoods. So that's where I get mad here is you have this environmental group who I'm sure they should have built this somewhere else. I don't disagree with that whatsoever. But again, you have outside radicals who hate the police. They're part of the ACAB movement. They're also like environmentalists. You get all that mixed together and you have people who don't really know what they want. And I think this is one of the moments where people, well, not people, these activists will not even accept attempts to reform or change. Like, what do they actually want? Because I think police reform is important. And I guess I would say at first when I read this stuff, I'm like, okay, they are putting an effort into like retrain and re-educate the police so they don't do as many of these shootings, which is true. Like just what yesterday we saw five officers arrested for, for beating up an unarmed man. And like this stuff happens all the time. And at first I was confused why some of these activists here in this Atlanta case were opposed by any attempts to reform the police. But I think at the end of it, you have to realize that a lot of these activists don't want reform. It's really that they don't want the police. Reform is not what they want. They truly do think that all cops are bad. All cops are bastards. ACAB, right? And it's the stupidest thing on the planet, ACAB, by the way. <laughs> like, any statement that says all of something are X, I say don't listen to it. Throw it away. Don't don't take whatever they say as anything of a reputable source because it's not all cops are not bad some cops are bad some cops are good like after the lovely hotel shooting incident that my mom and i experienced back in salt lake city we were in a town in nevada and we stayed in the hotel before we got back to to reno and we were telling a police officer who had his dog at the hotel talking to people we were telling about the experience he offered to drive us to the restaurant we wanted to go to. Very nice guy, said we'd be safe there. This was not a guy who's a bastard. This is a guy who wanted to help the community. And I think we need to get that through our heads, is that like not all police are bad. And any movement that says anything of something is bad should not be respected. And look, the police need to be accountable. But then again, in this situation, the guy opened fire on the Georgia State Troopers and they responded. Like, what do you expect when you're at a training facility and you shoot at the guys who are training, who are, like, literally trained to respond with force? What do you expect? And this is what just pisses me off, because these activists who are out there fighting this facility, A, are not mostly from the area that's being impacted, and B, they don't even know what they want. They just don't want the police. And I don't think that's any productive measure for solving anything. So I'll stop my ranting now, save you guys some time. But this case is just insane because the way the media is covering it is not how it looks like a lot of these affairs are happening. And I think they should do this cop training facility because look, the police have treated the African American community poorly. And they should be retrained in dealing with these situations in a less escalatory manner. I have no doubt. But when you have activists who just hate the police and don't want the police involved, then I'm sorry, I'm out. And in this case, the Georgia State Troopers just responded because a nutbag, from, all, from everything I've seen, was acting in a very bad manner. So anyways, longer episode today. I want to thank you guys for listening. 
It's Thursday evening. Take care of yourselves. I'll be back. And uh, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, whatever else there is that I forgot. Hasta la vista, baby. I'll be back. Thank you.